Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. God's Word says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them until it came and stood over the place the child was. May God add the blessing of the reading and the hearing of his word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Most of what we think we know about the wise men, I imagine, have come more from Christmas card artists than from the Bible or from history. This morning I thought it might be interesting to spend a few moments to see what we could learn from these initial seekers of the Christ child as to what it might mean or how we could be helped in being followers of him today in the 21st century. A hundred years ago, it was considered by critical scholars preponderous nonsense that wise men from the Far East should travel to Palestine to seek a Jewish king. This was surely legendary material that ardent believers in Jesus, decades and decades, well over a century later, made up, invented, wrote, well-meaning though they might be, to say something significant about this man they had come to think was their king and savior and even God. Today we know that the story doesn't need to be nonsensical at all. Let me give four brief reasons. For one reason, we now know that the materials, both oral and even in written form, of the birth of Jesus is much nearer than the events than they thought 100 and 150 years ago. There simply wasn't the same amount of time for the process of legendary accrual to accrue, if you will. Secondly, We know that the Magi, the wise men, were astrologers. They were the intellectuals of their day, and 
Many of the educated of the ancient world were astrologers. And we know that belief was widespread in the ancient world that the birth or the death or the impending death of a great king would have attendant to it a sign in the sky. In July of 44 B.C., four months after the assassination of Julius Caesar, at the funeral games that were being held in his honor, there was what's known as Caesar's Comet or Caesar's Star, probably a comet, some think perhaps a supernova, It is recorded in Suetonius and Tacitus and Josephus and many others. Suetonius says of it, a comet shone for seven successive days and was believed to be the very soul of Caesar. Octavius, the uh, heir and nephew of Caesar, uh, made a great lot out of Caesar's star. He commenced the building of a temple in Caesar's honor in 42 B.C., And right in the shrine, not only was there an image of Julius Caesar, but there was an image of Caesar's star. In 19 B.C., he had a coin uh, created with his own image on it, and on the back, Caesar's star. Now, just to show you that I've spared no effort, maybe expense for you, I've created a facsimile off the Internet. Caesar's head on the back, and can you see from where you are the star on the back? That's the coin that Octavius created in 19 B.C. It had quite a history and quite a heritage. Caesar's star was a great shot in the arm for the astrology business. They were able to say that whenever a great king died or was about to die or was born, There would be a sign for it in the heavens. Third, there was widespread belief in the ancient world at just this time that a great king would arise from Judea. Again, it's recorded in Tacitus and uh, Suetonius, Josephus. Uh, Suetonius writes, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated that at that time men coming from Judea would rule the world. Tacitus puts it this way. There was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful rulers coming from Judea and they were to acquire a universal Empire. In 68 AD, a Roman general, Vespasian, won a great victory in Judea and came back to Rome. And in his campaign to be emperor, which was successful, his campaign slogan, as it were, was, I am the ruler who was to come out of Judea. It was a widespread belief in the ancient world, for whatever reason, that there would be a great king that would come from Judea. At the same time, we know there was a conjunction, a cons- not a constellation, let's just stay with the word conjunction, of the planets at Jupiter and Saturn at just this time, and it set the astrologers crazy. 
So the fact that there would be magi traveling to investigate the birth of a king in Judea makes perfect historical sense. The question for us this morning is what kind of sense can we make of this interesting historical interlude for us who are followers of Jesus today? I have ten points. I'm going to be brief with them. It is Christmas. First, not just the Easter story, but the Christmas story contradicts the world's wisdom. We could see the entire story of the life of Jesus in many ways being a commentary on the first, some of the verses in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Where is the wise one of the age? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this world? Has not God shown the foolishness of the wisdom of this world? For the wisdom of this world could not, by wisdom, find out God. Therefore, God has been pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the gospel. Paul is quoting there Isaiah 29 and embroidering upon it, God makes the wisdom of the world foolish. Perhaps we know how, and this these verses are most often applied to the cross, but I think we can see some of the same dimensions in the story of Christmas itself. In the first place, the world's wisdom is almost always out of date. It is always captive to the matrix of its own time. C.S. Lewis said, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Every age, every time, thinks their time is unique. We are at the pinnacle of knowledge. But the Bible teaches, and the entire testimony of recorded history says that our great-grandchildren will think our beliefs today are just as foolish as we believe the beliefs of our great Grandmothers and fathers were to us. Where is the wisdom of this age? The Bible says, here's where it is. It is on its way out. Freud was in, then he was out, then he was in. I think he's out again. The wisdom of the age is always on its way out. It is regularly being replaced. It is the word of God that endures forever. Uh, Pick up the Bible, a series of writings almost 2,000 years old. And you can see in their testimony to the face of the same God, the word of the, the Lord endures forever. Second, the wisdom of the world doesn't run deep. The wisdom of the world cares deeply about things such as Influence and prestige and status and money and power and physical attractiveness and politics and influence. And I won't be so foolish as not to say that those things do not have an effect upon much of our lives. But if you look at the life of the one which almost a third of the globe today says their lives are intimately and eternally affected by if you look at the life of the one who has had the greatest influence on the history of humankind 
of any life that ever lived, what you will see is almost, not an almost, an astonishing indifference to all of those tentacles of the world's interest. Not many wise, not many noble, not many accomplished, not many educated at the birth of Jesus. The Magi came. They were there. Here we can see the wisdom of the world left to its own devices in, is inadequate. There is a wonderful restaurant over in Ross. This is a commercial, so be it. It's the Half Day Cafe. It's one of the best places you can go, in my estimation, in Marin for breakfast or lunch. But if you want dinner, you're out of luck. It's the Half Day Cafe. It gets you halfway. (laughs) That's exactly where the world's wisdom gets us. It can tell us some things. It can tell us some important things. It can tell us that we have problems. It can tell us that we have needs. It can tell us that we have desires. It can tell us that we are broken. It can tell us what's wrong. But it has a more difficult time telling us what's right and where to go and how to find fulfillment and how to put our lives back together. The world's wisdom is just halfway. You know, almost uh, every sermon I've ever heard, every Christmas pageant I've ever seen gets wrong. The star did not lead the Magi. It got their attention. And they came to Jerusalem to ask where he was. And Herod goes to the scribes and Pharisees and he gets the answer, not from the star, but from the word of God. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So the light can reveal our need, but it does not reveal the answer. That comes to them from revelation. We can open the door, but finally we need Christ to come to us, to be born for us, to speak to us. The world's wisdom is only halfway. Many of us went through a study this fall with Tim Keller. He puts this point more succinctly than I had ever heard it put. Uh, The wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive, whereas the wisdom of the gospel is for everyone. Here's basically the way I'll summarize uh, Keller putting it. The world uh, has a short shrift with what they call the exclusivity of the Christian faith. This one savior, this one way, this one king, well, of course, at the end of the day, there is going to be one story, whatever it is, that puts the world right. And it is unapologetically the Christian claim that this is the story, this is the one, this is the king. But look how amazingly expansive the invitation is. No one believes that everyone will be saved. Not the wicked, not the Hitlers, not the torturers of this world. And so the wisdom of the world says only the moral, only the good. Only the deserving, only the strong. 
the story of Christmas, of the Christ who was born in a man- manger among the smell of dung, with surrounded by the shepherds. He says the good news of the gospel is for everyone. I love the story. The magi and the shepherds end up at the same place. They are called and brought to the same place and the same terrain. And because Jesus Christ was born in a manger, that means the good news of the gospel is to everyone, and it is to anyone. Then, fifthly, Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and he should be worshipped as such. The Magi come to Herod and ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod turns to his scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't know scripture well enough himself to know the answer and says, where will he be born? And the answer comes back, a simple answer, Bethlehem. But if he had asked and said, who is he? They might have read to him these verses which run on in Micah's prophecy, the fifth chapter. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He will be great to the ends of the earth. This king who will arise in Bethlehem will be from eternity. John's Gospel puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he will be great to the ends of the earth itself. That's who he is. Then the story about the Magi and their pilgrimage of Jesus also tells us that he is going to be worshipped by all the nations and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew's Gospel, it is framed by that testimony, Matthew's gospel, which is preeminently a witness to the Jews, it is preeminently a gospel which shows how Jesus is the new Moses and the new deliverer of his people. It is Luke's gospel, which is more universal, but even in this Jewish gospel, Matthew frames it with the insight that Jesus Christ is going to be worshipped and is for all the nations. Here at the outside, these pagan, these Gentile magi come, and at the Gospels close, we are told all authority has been given on heaven and earth to Christ's church to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Nations will come and honor him as king. Then, God's glory will be displayed. I don't know what the meaning of the Christmas star is, and I've read quite a bit about it this week. But I know it means in part this, God will arrange, God will sovereignly arrange not only all of history, but all of the cosmos to reveal the glory of his name and of his person. But try this on for size. One commentary, I have five pages of notes on it, but I'm not going to bring that to you. I've never seen this idea before, but uh, in the Hebrew, now this is only deep background, we're not dealing with Hebrew, we're dealing with Greek. But in the Hebrew, astar doesn't necessarily mean star, it could be lightning, it could be be great light, 
it could be shining forth. And when uh, Herod asks to see, the word that is used there in the Greek is to see the light. Could it be that what the Magi saw wasn't a star, wasn't a comet, wasn't a constellation, but the Shekinah glory of God, the glory that lit up the skies when the angels sang. The Shekinah glory where the light and presence of of the newborn king shone forth, which was visible. What the light of Christmas was, was the glory of Christmas. I meant to bring it up here this morning, but Bryce found a wonderful, I always liked it even before I came in the weeks of Advent. It's probably out on one of the tables. Do you remember? It was a blue scene of the nativity. And instead of the star overhead, out of the manger came a light emanating. It's exactly the picture of what I've found in the commentary. It said, possibly, this shining forth that the Magi, Magi saw was the same light that the shepherds saw, the Shekinah glory of the living God himself. Then, When Jesus comes, he invites all people to worship him. And in this one text, we see three responses. We see, first of all, the response of indifference. The scribes and Pharisees who know where he is going to be born show no interest at all. They drop it. They are indifferent. Herod is perhaps a little bit more wise. He is fearful. He knows something here has to be dealt with. And, of course, the third response is the Magi who come and go to seek him and with joy worship him. So here's what the text says about worship. Worshiping the living Christ means to joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to him and present before him sacrificial gifts. Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? the first thing they do is ascribe authority to him. They ascribe dignity to him. And then they go joyfully to worship him with sacrificial gifts. One of the Greek words for worship is proskuneo, and it means literally to prostrate oneself before, to lie down before. They come and prostrate themselves with joy bringing sacrificial gifts. Gold, the sign of the king. Myrrh, a perfume to make the ugliness of life more sweet and the stench of death less repulsive. And frankincense, the uh, offering that is given in the temple. It was reserved in the Holy of Holies. As, a, as an offering for the divine. Gold says he's a king. Myrrh says he's a man. Frankincense said that he was divine. All of this offered joyfully. This Christmas, may all within the sound of my voice have the wisdom to call the Christ child Lord of Lords and King of Kings and worship him with all that we have and all that we are. Even though it may be a few days late, may we say it again. Christ 
is born today. Christ is born to save. Christ is born the King. Living and holy God, we are amazed by the wonder of Christmas. We are amazed by the length and extent, the breadth and depth of your love in Christ, the greatest missionary journey that was ever undertaken. Your love is strong enough and has reached far enough to reach people even such as we know ourselves to be. And for that, eternity itself will not be time enough to sing your praise. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.